right. Good morning, Docs at Church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. I love that sound so much. Well, hey, my name is Rudy. If we haven't had a chance to, to meet yet, I'm really glad that, that you're here. I'd love to get to, to say hi. If you have a Bible, you can head over to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be continuing our explicit gospel series. We'll just be in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And as I've been thinking about this text and the direction that we're going this morning in our series as we've been laying out the, the explicit gospel, what the gospel is, how we live into it, two conversations that I've had a countless number of times have actually continued to kind of cycle through, through my mind. Both conversations start something like this. I've been in college ministry for the last 10 years, uh, and so I, it's with a student. It's on a campus, and I get to sit down, and it's lunch or breakfast or coffee or tea or something, and we're just chatting. Maybe we're going on a walk, just chatting, and I, and I hear a little bit about their life, and then I get to share a little bit about my life, and in sharing a bit about my life, have an opportunity to share the gospel. We start to talk about the gospel, and for some people, they hear the gospel, and it's, it's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but following Jesus, like just faithful following Jesus, want a place on campus to just like grow together. Incredible, awesome, love that. Um, for others, the gospel is entirely foreign to them. And if that's you and you're here this morning, I'm really honored that you're here, really grateful. We want to lay it, the gospel out more and more clearly uh, today as well. And, and then there's this group of people where the gospel just feels very, I think the word I could use is like cultural or maybe just familiar. Like they grew up around the gospel. Uh, they got the words for the gospel. They've been proximic to the good news of Jesus Christ in different places, spaces, maybe family, relationships, whatever. Uh, but but it, they don't know the gospel its, itself. And, and, and this one, these conversations can kind of start from here and take two different turns. One direction this conversation goes is when we start to talk about Jesus, uh, the, it goes something like this. The person looks across from me, the guy looks across from me at the table and says, hey, so since God God's given us grace, doesn't that mean I can just do whatever I want? Right? Like, he's going to forgive me anyways, right? So can't I just do anything? This is the idea of God as something that you can just use. I'm going to pull out my grace card and use it to do whatever I want, and God will be cool with that because he's cool with me. I get sad, if I'm honest, when I, when I hear this because it's a really low view of, of God and a really low view of grace. Another conversation, uh, the, another place this conversation can, can go sounds like this. We start to talk about Jesus, and even before I, I get into like asking them, hey, what have you heard about that? What do you know about the gospel? Like, Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, learning more about him, following him? Um, they, I, I watch their shoulders slump a little bit, and I watch their head droop a little bit, and kind of they look at their hands, and they say something like, yeah, I I know I'm supposed to be doing this, or I should be doing that, or I need to be doing this more, or that less. And while what they're saying may actually be true, they just look and sound just in completely defeated. Before we've even gotten to the conversation, the gospel feels like something that is crushing them. Honestly, what it sounds like is they're just afraid. The idea of the gospel is something that maybe has set them free, but, but it's now like they've been set free, not into freedom, but into prison. They've been set free from their sin, and now they're in like this debtor's guilt, this prison where they've got to prove that God made a good decision uh, by, with the rest of their life, paying off their debt now with the rest of their life. I get sad when I hear this because it's, it's a skewed view of God. It's a skewed view of grace. 
these docs, these aren't conversations that only happen with college students. It's just where I've been. Maybe you've had this conversation. Maybe you've had these conversations in your head and have been maybe a little too nervous to say stuff like this out loud. These two conversations sound very different. They sound like they've got different views of God or different views of grace or different views of the gospel. But the two conversations actually share one very important, similar origin. There's a question that lives at the root of both of these questions. There's a question that lives at the root of both of these conversations, and it's this. How do I live on the other side of the gospel? Okay, I've come to Jesus. I'm going to trust in him as Lord and Savior. But then what will the rest of my life look like? After I trust in him as Lord and Savior, after I confess that he died for, for my sin and rose again from the grave, after I've become a Christian, how do I live? Am I just crushed by all of these things I'm supposed to do, or can I just go and do whatever I want? A- another way you could look at this question is this, is what does the gospel produce in and through me? How does the gospel that has saved me now shape me? I'm going to give you the answer to these questions at the top, and then we're going to lay it out through Ephesians chapter 2. What does life look like on the other side of the gospel? What does the gospel produce in and through me? Here it is. Note takers, this is for you. Top of the page. The gospel produces a life marked by good works. Okay, please do not hear what I did not say. I did not say that the gospel requires a life marked by good works. Jared told us this last week. To come into the gospel, to come to Jesus, what is required is simply repentance and belief. That you would trust in Jesus and turn from your sin. I did not say requires. I said the gospel produces a life marked by good works. And this morning... We're going to actually look at the way that that very same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that shapes us. As I've been praying for you and for our time this week, uh, the words of a hymn have come to mind. My hope is that this morning uh, would result in you having strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow for the good works that the gospel is producing and will produce in you for your, your life. So we'll walk through this text in three parts. If this is helpful, you could draw like a little tree on your notepad and we'll deal with the roots, the truth, and the fruit. The truth will be like the trunk, roots, truth, and fruit of the gospel. So let's roll. I hope that was enough time to get to Ephesians chapter 2. That's what every intro is, guys. It's just time for you to get to the text. I'm kidding. Um, and we like to say that if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's hop right in. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love those verses. We could spend a really long time there. In a sense, we've actually spent the last several weeks in these verses with our series. A lot could be said here. I just want to make a couple of observations. First, look at verse 2. There's a phrase that's important for what God is saying to the Ephesian church and to us through these inspired words to Paul, where he writes, in which you once walked. 
It's a very exact translation of a Greek word, peripateo. Some translations, maybe your translation in your Bible, uh, writes that out as in which you once lived. That's because the two are the same. How you live is seen in what you do. This phrase will come up again in the last verse, but for now it's important to understand that as Paul lays out the gospel, he starts with the walking, the doing, the actions, the living, the life of the Ephesians and of every reader since, including us. And that's important because of what precedes that word, that phrase. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul then goes on to give an, 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 to, to do, give an anatomy of those trespasses and sins. We walked in the way of the world, away from the way of God. We followed the prince of the power of the air, which is another title given for the devil. We lived in the passion of our flesh, our desire for sin. Ultimately, the conclusion of Paul is that the way in which we once walked, the way in which we once lived, revealed that we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Showing us that all of mankind, all of humanity has a severe and significant need as a result of our sin. Let's make this very clear. The picture of this way of life, this peripateo, this walking, this living prior to Christ isn't bad or hard or a little off. The word that Paul uses here is intended to be stunning and shocking and to cause us to stop. He says, you were dead. We were dead. If God is the author of all that is living and sin leads us away from him, then it only makes sense that sin leads us to death. We are dead in our sin. Not simply bad, not simply just a little bit off. We are dead. Now, I know that this isn't where the text ends. I know we want to rush to the but God here, right? But it's appropriate not to rush past it. It's appropriate to let this fill the room just a little bit, Christian. To remember that we weren't just in need of a little help from Jesus. To remember that your morality wasn't already good and you just needed a little bit of Jesus sprinkling on top of it to get you there. You and I were dead in our sin. And God, in an act of pure mercy, love, grace, and kindness, chose to make a way so that we would not stay there. This is the gospel, this is the good news. That God, being so rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead, raised us up with Christ. Not when we leveled up enough with enough good works to get our salvation card. While we were dead in our sin, Jesus died and rose again so that we might have life with him. Christ, who was sent to die for our sin, his body broken, blood shed, life given for us. It took, hear it, just sit with it for a second. It took the death of God's Son to save us from our sin. This is the severity of our sin, and it is the severity of his love. It is the weight of his grace, the assurance of his resurrection, that by grace we have been saved, given a pardon from sin, and a peace that endures. We've been raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of kindness and grace to us who are in Christ Jesus. We have done nothing because we could do nothing because we were dead. He's done everything. He's made us alive. Christian, that's the gospel. 
Christ is your savior, if you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All that is required is that you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and believe in him. These are the roots of the gospel. This is our vitality. This is our strength. This is our foundation. And these roots come to a head in the trunk that is this gospel truth that is incredible and beautiful. One of my favorite ones in all of scripture, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Gospel roots leading to the gospel truth. And it's here in this gospel truth that we begin to mine out what life on the other side of the gospel looks like. What gives shape to a life marked by good works. And this starts by understanding the sharp difference between this scripture, what this scripture teaches, this gospel truth, and what is so often a driving paradigm in the Western world that we live in, a cultural truth. A gospel truth and a cultural truth come at odds in this text. The gospel truth that we see could be summed up like this. By grace, you are saved, which directly confronts the cultural truth by works you have earned. There is a necessary distinction to make because by works you have earned is what lies at the heart of a philosophy that overwhelmingly influences the Western world that we live in called moralism. Moralism orbits around this framework by works you have earned. It looks like this. It's a group of people that determine a set of morals and say that if you behave according to these morals, then you belong. Moralism says if you behave, then you belong. By works, you earn. Are you looking for approval in whatever group that you're a part of? Your behavior will earn it for you. Are you looking for right standing in that group? Your behavior will earn it. You're you're looking for belonging? Behavior will earn it. You're looking for assurance? Behavior will earn it. And in moralism, Your behavior, your good works don't just earn it for you, they keep you there. If you want to keep your approval, your right standing, your belonging, your assurance with that group, if you want to keep your place, you have to behave and keep behaving, even and especially when the boundaries of that group move. Salvation in moralism isn't being without sin, it's being without scandal. Just don't make yourself look bad and don't make us look bad. It's boasted and it says, I got myself here, so I'll keep myself here. In moralism, it's by works you earn and by works you keep. You want to talk about some of the cultural anxiety? I'm not saying clinical, I'm saying cultural anxiety that we experience in our city. It's because moralism's at the root of it. You want to talk about why some people who follow Jesus get exhausted and tired while they're following Jesus? Sometimes it's because moralism has creeped into the way that they follow Jesus. It's exhausting. It's crushing, and it is one of the cruelest confusions when it's imported into the gospel. Let me say it as sharply as I can. It is a false view of the gospel. It says, Jesus saves me, but my good works keep me. Please understand this. Moralism is a mockery of the gospel for the simple reason that it looks at Jesus Christ on the cross, sees him dying for our sin, bleeding for us, God on the cross, sweating, suffering, taking the wrath of the sin of the world so that we might be forgiven. And it looks at him and it says, good try, Jesus. Nice ball, Jesus. Good effort, Jesus. I'll pick it up and I'll take it from here. Thanks for the cross thing. I've got it from here, though. Thanks for dying for my sin and rising from the grave, but I'll actually pick it up from here. I'll work to earn my, I'll work to keep my salvation. 
The mockery of this is matched only by the incredulity of it. These are Paul's words to the Galatian church in a different area when he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Was it not before your own eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, that you now think you're being perfected by the flesh? Having thought that he saved me and now I've got to work to earn my salvation. Begun by the spirit, being perfected in the flesh, foolishness. When you look at the cross from moralism, it looks unnecessary. But when you look at moralism from the cross, it looks like foolishness. This is the way to the gospel truth that Paul lays out. It is not by work you earn or keep. It's by grace that you are saved. By grace you are brought in. By grace you are kept. And by grace you will be kept. This is not of yourself. It's not possible for you to boast in your works. It's not that you behave so that you belong. It's that you look at Jesus and you believe in what he's done for you. And he makes it so you belong. You're looking for approval with God. By grace you can receive it through Christ. Right stand by grace, assurance by grace, belonging by grace. By grace, God, Jesus calls you sibling. By grace, God calls you a child. By grace, you have been saved. And this same grace that saves you is the same grace that gives shape to your life. This grace of the gospel is what gives form to the way in which you live as someone who claims to be saved by Jesus, which brings us back to our original question, how do we live on the other side of the gospel? What does the gospel produce in us, produce through our lives? It's the same answer. The gospel produces good works. Grace gives shape to a life marked by good works. Think about it like this. If the gospel brings me to Jesus and the life of Jesus looked like a life of good works, then as I am brought to Jesus and formed to the image of Jesus, it then produces the life of Jesus in me, which is a life that looks like good works. The gospel produces good works. Our temptation is to think that there is no relation between the gospel and good works. It's just not so, though. While there is no good work that is required on our behalf, our good works are absolutely fueled, desired, and produced by the gospel. It is gospel roots that lead to understanding this gospel truth that produces gospel fruit in our lives. Often when we read Ephesians chapter 2, you'll hear people quote verses 8 and 9, and they stop before verse 10. A crying shame in my opinion. Let's read verse 10 together because it is absolutely wonderful. For we are his workmanship, his, maybe your translation says handiwork, maybe your translation says we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. This is, let's start with the end and walk backwards a little bit. Okay, it's just a Bible study, Rudy, calm down. Okay, okay. That we should walk in them. This has the same root as we saw in verse 2. Before we were in Christ, we walked in, we lived in our sin. After coming to Christ, there is still a way that we walk in, in which we live, that we peripateo, but it is different now. We walk in the good works that we were created for in Christ as his workmanship. We were created with these good works in mind. The gospel produces these good works in and through our lives. And as we come to Christ and we follow him, we start to walk in these good works that were set apart for us by God himself. He has changed us, and now we walk and continually live into that change. Gospel produces good works in our life. So two questions we need to ask and answer, and then I'm going to take my seat. Question number one, note takers, right there. What motivates these good works? We're going to get after this again. In moralism, 
Good works are primarily motivated by two drivers, duty and fear. We have to address these because we don't want to mix moralism into the beginning of how we come to Christ, but we also don't want to mix moralism into the way that we now live after we've come to Christ and as we walk with him. We don't want to try to mix moralism into the motivation of the good work set apart for us in the gospel. Duty and fear are moralistic drivers for good works. Duty says, I have to. I have to do this. It's just what I do. It's how I keep my place. It's how I earn my spot. And over time, Christian, please hear me, over time, duty will crush you. It will exhaust you. It will wear you down and wear you out, take you places you don't want to go and keep you there longer than you want to stay. You're at risk of becoming the older brother in the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the prodigal son. Quick reminder on this. Two sons at a house with the father. One son, the younger son, chooses to run away, take his inheritance. He squanders it. He spends it all. He comes back thinking, maybe my father will make me a servant in the house. Instead, the father says, my son has returned. He was dead, but he's now alive. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God to those who come home to him. It's incredible. Throws a party. It's wild. Doesn't make the son wait outside until he's learned his lesson. He says, we're throwing a party right now. You're right there in the middle of it. My son's come home. Incredible story. There's also another brother. This other brother stays outside of the party, makes the father come out to him. The father comes out to him and says, why don't you come inside? That other brother doesn't say, my brother. He says, your son, creating as much separation between him and that other son as possible. And here's what happens. That older brother is, just, is dominated by duty. He's consumed with duty. And in that, he abandons his younger brother that comes home and yells at the father for being gracious to him. See, duty has this tendency to look right, but it is so dangerous. In time, it will lead you to get mad at God for being gracious to people that you don't think deserve his grace. It will lead to you crushing and abandoning those same people. It will lead to you looking at God in such a transactional, using way that says, why didn't you do this for me? It just creates this gunk in our souls, this duty. It's so dangerous. And the reality of it is, is that you don't even truly despise the younger son or the father. You despise yourself. Because you can't live up to your own impossible standard. It is never enough for you. So you simply work harder and harder. And everyone around you can see it and smell it. It's what we talked about earlier. God saved me, but my good works keep me. God saved me, but my good works prove I'm worth it. God saved me, but my good works earn my place with him. It smells like, if you'll allow me, duty. That's for free. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that God saved me by grace and God keeps me by grace. The gospel is strong enough to save you and to keep you. Jesus does it all. And if that's the case, then what's left? What remains to motivate us to do good works? Can I give it to you? Four-letter word right on your paper. What remains is love. Ultimately, duty is a cheap alternative for love. Love is a true motivation for good works in the gospel. Here's what's incredible. All of our love in Christianity is responsive love. That is to say, you have never initiated love with God. He has always gone first with you. We are always and constantly Christ follower responding to the love that he's first shown us. So here's what it looks like for love to motivate our good works. It means as I experience and remember the love of Jesus towards me, I simply love him back with my life. 
I know the love of Jesus and I love him back. As I come to know him, I start to know what he likes and I orient my life towards that, towards those good works. It means that I look at the gospel frequently. I preach the gospel and remind the gospel to myself frequently and I contemplate the severity of my sin, the significance of his love in saving me, the amazing nature of his grace, the weight of his mercy. I look at the roots of the gospel. I remember the gospel truth of grace and then I live in response producing gospel fruit in my life. Just consider these words of Jesus from John 14, 15. If you've got a problem with anything I've said, let's just lean into the words of Jesus where he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I wonder what it looks like for you to cultivate a remembrance of God's love for you so that you would live a life in response to loving him. Can I tell you what it looks like for me right now? Our Salt Company students heard this on Thursday at our college gathering, um, but I'm just going to share it with you. Uh, For me right now, a way that I'm remembering the love of Jesus for me is I'm thinking about the cross. I'm thinking about the face of Jesus on the cross. And on the face of Jesus on the cross, there are at least two things that are on Jesus' face while he is dying for my sin. He has a crown of thorns on his head that has been placed and pressed down, that has been swatted down. So there is blood. The blood of God is on the face of Jesus. But it is not the only thing that is on the face of Jesus. If you go a little further back to the trial, the mock trial, the unjust trial that Jesus faces before he's sentenced to be crucified, you find that people are spitting on the face of Jesus. So on the face of Jesus, on the cross, is man's spit and God's blood. The very worst that I could possibly bring to Jesus and the very best that God could possibly offer for me. My spit, my sin, my rebellion, my worst moments, my attempts at good moments, everything apart from Christ, everything that would put me in rebellion and against God, my spit on the face of Jesus, covered by the blood that washes me me clean and sets me free and forgives me of that sin. That's the severity of my sin and the severity of his love. I'm just remembering that, thinking about the love of Jesus on the cross for me, cultivating a love that lives in response to him. This helps the guy that sits across from the table from me and asks if he can do whatever he wants because he'll be forgiven anyways. Can I just help that guy? That guy does not know the love of Jesus. He's missing the love of Jesus. And because he doesn't see it, he has no idea how to love Jesus back with his life. So the thing that he jumps to immediately is, okay, well, I'm just going to use him then. Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card where I check the box, put it in the storage bin, and pull it out when I need something. Please hear me. That is not love. That is use. When you love someone, really love someone, you want what they want because you want them. You love what they love because you love them. Even if it means laying down your choice, your desire, your dreams, your goals, you don't do it begrudgingly. You don't do it because you're forced to. You simply do it because you love them. When you see the love of Jesus in the gospels, it motivates good works because you love what he loves. And so you orient your life to love Jesus back obedience towards the way of Jesus isn't driven by simple cheap duty it is fueled by loving affection for the one that loved you first we see love as one motivator and grace as another see when you rightly see the grace of God it becomes a driver a motivator for good works Uh, Thomas Brooks once said that grace and glory differ very little one is the seed the other is the flower grace is glory militant and glory is grace triumphant 
Grace is glory militant. Grace is God presently glorifying himself through you, through your salvation and through your life. This is a different view from grace as simply insurance for the end of your life, but grace being present strength, present power, present fuel, present weight in your life to form and send and shape you. The grace that you needed in a moment to save you from your sin is the same grace that you need day by day to walk in the good works that God has set apart for you in Christ Jesus. Empowering grace is God giving us what we need to do the good works that he set apart for us. We're not alone in those works. He gives us the grace, the strength, the power, the sufficiency in himself to do them. This speaks to the person that says, I have to or I should be doing more or less of this or that. The motivation there is fear. Fear says, if I fail or if I fall short, will God abandon me? Maybe you do need to start or stop or slow or add, but you don't need to be afraid that he'll abandon you. Just latch on to Psalm 27, verse 10. Even if my father and my mother abandoned me, he will not abandon me because he cares for me. You don't need to be crushed by the next step, the next good work set apart for you, because anything he asks you to do, any good work he puts in front of you, he is glorifying himself through you by his grace. Grace and love are greater than duty and fear when it comes to living out the good works of God that he set apart for you in Christ. So you take time, slow, undistracted time just to look at Jesus, to see his love, and to love him back. You see his grace, you understand that it is more than simply insurance, but it's present fuel for good works that he set apart for you now. Grace and love are the motivators for the good works that he set apart for you. And you can understand all of that and still have a question remaining, which is our second one. What are the good works that he set apart for me? <laughs> like, what are the ones he set apart for, for me? This is a great question to consider in your connection groups this week because the weight of Ephesians chapter 2, 10 is that he has set them apart for you. Now that's us together, but it's also you individually. So how do you come to know these works that he set apart for you? I just want to give you two rails to kind of run on, to think through, to talk about, and, and it's considering discerning the good works that he set apart for you in relation to others and the good works that he set apart for you in relation to yourself, for others and for yourself. So first, I want you to consider the good work in relation to others. This is actually where Ephesians chapter 2 continues. If you were to keep reading, you'd see that the good works that Ephesus is called to as a church is to understand that Jesus, by his finished work on the cross, has broken down the dividing walls of separation, the walls that kept different ethnicities from communing with or worshiping with one another. Those are broken down, and the blood of Jesus has brought all who are Christians together to be a family, to be joined as one. So the good works for the church in Ephesus is to live in this unity as a church. And I would argue that the primary reason for this is because that's what heaven looks like. Heaven looks like every tribe and tongue and nation and people gathering together for all eternity to worship and live in unity together under God with him forever. This example of good works for the Ephesians to walk in is to live in relation to others in a way that reflects heaven. Or to quote the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder if this is where you might start to discern what good works God may have for you in relation to people around you. 
what the good works he may have for you are, to look at what things look like in eternity, to contemplate and think towards and remember and study what heaven is like, and then seek to see the same realities here around you. Will it be perfect? No. Is that possibly what your next step is, to see heaven here on earth in some way, shape, or form? Let me say it like this, to move towards other people in a redemptive way, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, in Ephesus as it is in heaven, in Madison, Verona, Middleton, in Sun Prairie, in Deerfield, in Oregon, in Fitchburg as it is in heaven. What would that look like? What could the next step for you possibly be? So take some time this week in your connection group. Take some time this week alone and consider this question in relation to your corner of the world, your family, your street, your workplace, where you work out or where you go out. What would it look like for heaven to come to that place? And what good work could God have set apart for you right where you are to see that happen? That's good works in relation to others. And then there's good works in relation to ourselves. These are the good works of character and formation as a person in relation to who you are and who you're becoming. Often this good work is summed up in becoming more like Jesus. My question for you maybe to write down and consider this week is very simple. Who would Jesus be if he was you? Now I don't mean go live like an itinerant rabbi in the first century on State Street. Like, that's not what I'm I'm saying. I'm saying, who would Jesus be if he was you? Picture it. Consider it. Who would Christ be if he were me? If he was a 31-year-old living in Madison on the west side. Who would Christ be if he was me? How would Molly feel loved as my wife? How would my neighbors feel invited into my life and my home? How would I react when I got bad news at work? How would I spend my time, my evenings? How would I interact with other guys at the gym? How would I share the gospel in my life? Who would Christ be if he was me? What would heaven on earth look like? Who would Christ be if he was me? Take those questions, consider what they might look like, and consider the next step, and you may be staring at the good work, the next good work that Christ has set apart for you. All right, I'm gonna close. Jenna, you can... Head on up. Um, Two words for two groups here this morning, and then I'm going to take my seat. The first group of people, um, I want to just say, keep going to you. May you have been so faithful to step into the good works that God has set apart for you in Christ Jesus over and over and over and over again. Sometimes they have cost you. Sometimes it's resulted in difficulty. Sometimes the beginning of it's been hard. You've seen it result beautifully sometimes. You've seen it seem unresolved other times. I want to thank you for the strength that you give to the people that are watching you. The people in our church, the people in your connection group, the people in your life that are watching you love and follow Jesus, that are watching you walk in faith, that are watching you take that next step, that are watching you live a life where the gospel produces good works. You are strengthening the church. By grace, God is using you to do so. I want to say thank you. And if you feel weary in that, I want to remind you of Paul's words to not grow weary in doing good. Please, please take time to remember the gospel to reflect on his love, to look back to, to meditate on, to think on the gospel of Jesus Christ, his grace being your present strength right now. Grace as glory militant on display in your life.
keep going. By grace, keep going. To another group of you, I want to say don't wait. You've seen the good work in front of you. Man, as soon as I started talking about that gospel fruit section, it was like a battering ram on your brain. You've barely been able to listen to what I'm talking about because you know what that next good work is that you're supposed to step into and you haven't been able to shake it. I want to invite you to step into it and don't wait. Look at the love of Jesus and love him back and take a step into that good work. Consider the grace of Jesus and let it be your strength and fuel and step into that good work. Don't put it off a second longer. Make the phone call. Take the step. Set up the plan. Whatever it is, take that next step towards that good work today. Genuinely, I thank God for what he's done here in Doxa. When our staff gets together and we share stories, um, we see the gospel producing good works in the lives of men and women in our youth ministry, college ministry, kids ministry, connection groups, local missions, all of it. Like, and, and not just through staff, but through, like, 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 that would be so sad if it was only through staff. But it's actually through the lives of men and women who call docs at home and say, we are just going to live a life wherein the gospel is producing good works in and through us, in our lives and through us to the people who are around us. So I want to commend you, but I also want to challenge you. What could it look like? What could God continue to do through us as we continue to see the gospel produce good works in and through us, Doxa? What would that mean for our church? What would that mean for your community? What would that mean for our city, for the campus? What would it mean for other church plants? What would it mean for the nations that they might be glad as people go as a good work to share the gospel there? I just want to stoke your imagination with that. What could God do through you? I want to take a moment here to just pause and just for focus and reflection and quiet, just you could bow your head and close your eyes. No one's going to ask you to move, to stand, to raise your hand. No one's going to come tap you, nothing like that. But I just want to give you some space to respond. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to hear so clearly what we're saying, that it's not that you need good works to get in to the kingdom of it's not that you need good works to earn the gospel it is so clear in the text it is by grace you can be saved if you would come to jesus if you would remember that god so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life that you can come and be in christ and know that there's now no condemnation for you you can come to jesus today you can come to him right now he will show you grace and love and mercy he will give you belonging if you put your trust in him and turn from your old ways and walk in this new way that he is actually set apart for you if a defeater in your head for why you haven't chosen to start following jesus why you haven't come to jesus yet is because you're not sure what life will look like on the other side let me tell you it's not about going and just doing whatever you want like it doesn't matter at all and it's not about being crushed by fear or by duty it's actually about walking in a way that the love of jesus towards you through the gospel within shape your life but what you need before you need a shaped life is his salvation and his love towards you so you can come to jesus today you can put your trust in jesus today don't wait for those who are in the room that are christians my encouragement is please keep going If you feel weary, bring your weariness to Jesus. If you feel nervous, bring your nervousness to Jesus. 
you look to heaven, look to Christ, and ask him to help you know what the next step, the next good work might be as you slowly read the Bible, as you slowly contemplate the cross, and as you wait in prayer on God to make it clear. Would you be faithful to take the next step as you look to Jesus and remember his faithfulness? as you look to God the Father and remember his first faithfulness, that he was faithful first and that what he has accomplished in us then produces and comes through our own lives. Would our faithfulness not be something that we concocted on our own, but that it would come from seeing the faithfulness first of Jesus and then going and doing likewise, seeing the love of Jesus and then loving him back. I want to invite you to just take room wherever you are, however you need to respond in prayer. You need to ask, maybe you just need to sit. But just take some time to pray. Take some time to respond, and then we'll sing.